main chapter. Uh, really, really helpful chapter. I thought I forgot my notes, but, but, but by the grace of God, I still have my that program that I store my notes in on my phone, so um, it's going to be a, a easier for me and a little bit more helpful for you that, that I have my notes. But I'll go to chapter 19. We'll. Uh, who wants to read uh, verses 1 through 15? Verses 1 through 15. Okay. Who wants to read verses 16 through 25? Anybody? 16 through 25? Okay, Candy? Yeah, Candy. Okay, uh, Una and Candy? In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on this day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Then they set out from Rahidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel came in front of the mountain. Now Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall stay to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have, been, have seen what I did in the and how I lifted you up on evil wing and brought you to myself. So then, so now that, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all these words which Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the word of the people to Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a third and thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you in you forever. Then Moses told the word of people to Yahweh. Yahweh also said to Moses, Go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bound for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up the mountain, on the mountain, or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall surely be stoned, or surely shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and set the people apart as holy, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with, with a thick cloud over the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai, Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And he sounded, and the sound, sorry, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through, through to see. Uh, sorry. So they do not further their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. 
Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you warned you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So far in Exodus, by way of review, Israel's battle with Pharaoh and the Egyptian army uh, demonstrated through the plagues. Uh, it, that battle highlighted God's supremacy over the world. And that supremacy was mediated through Moses and Israel. And we were introduced to, that, to the idea that what happened in Egypt thousands of years ago uh, plays a bigger picture in God's plan for us than we usually think of. And and, and that Israel has a role in that plan. Israel leaves Egypt in chapter 14, and then from chapter 15 through 18, uh, God launches everything. God makes uh, his... He, uh, God goes public. He launches his salvation program to the world. He, he launches Israel. He launches a theology of the law. He launches the knowledge of who Yahweh is. And in, the, in those chapters from 15 through 18... We learn something about the purpose of the law, that, that the law reveals our sin, that the law points to salvation. The law can't save us per se, uh, but it can point us to that which can save us. We were made aware of Israel as an international entity and, and that her interaction uh, was, a, was a negative interaction. It was a positive interaction. Uh, God will curse the nations who curse Israel and the Amalekites will learn that lesson the hard way, right? They tried to curse Israel, Israel, uh, and God cursed them. But on the other hand, uh, Israel's positive impact was shown in Moses' uh, relationship with his father-in-law Jethro, the Midianite. God will bless the nations who bless Israel. And so we, we saw it in uh, chapter 18 how uh, Jethro converted to, to the true worship of Yahweh. He saw the power of God's word in the life of Israel. And uh, we learned that uh, yeah, uh, Yahweh must be about God's word, right? Now, in chapter 19, we're going to learn uh, more about the purpose of the nation Israel, specifically uh, in relationship to the law, or in relationship to the word of God. And we'll see how uh, uh, Israel has a kind of a vertical purpose, and we'll see how uh, Israel has a horizontal purpose, right? And, and both of those relationships, vertical and horizontal, is are, are, inter, are interdependent on whether, whether or not they keep the law of God, whether they keep God's word. So that's what chapter 19 is about. Chapter 19 is a, a wonderful chapter. Uh, the first two verses are kind of set up. They give the context of what is about to happen. Uh, these first two verses... They bring everything that's come before uh, chapter 19. They bring a lot of the content from chapter 1 through uh, one through 18, and they bring it into chapter 19. Um, uh, verse 1, it says, in the third month. Uh, that's really important because when God marks time or gives some sort of date, uh, he does that to say that what is about to happen is going to be really important, right? Um, when you think, say, hey, we're thinking about getting married, or versus, hey, we're, we're getting married, like, June 15th, uh, once you give the date, uh, that, 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 whatever happens on that day becomes very serious, becomes official, because, becomes solemn, right? Uh, I got, uh, uh, some emails from Justin Constance, like, save the date, uh, we're getting married here, at RSVP, Right? Uh, and this is kind of this in, this in a similar way. God is saying it's in the, this is going to, something something very important is about to happen in the third month. Then it's, then Moses says after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. In other words, what is about to happen in chapter nineteen? It is connected with their deliverance from Egypt. The, what, what happened in Egypt and their, and their deliverance and their exodus 
is tied to what is going to happen in chapter 19. They're going to go from the old slavery to Pharaoh to a new slavery to Yahweh. So chapter 19 is going to uh, talk about how Israel lives out this new slave theology. New slave theology. Uh, look what he says in verse 19 again. On this day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. This is an official day of remembrance. This is going to be a solemn day. This is an important day. And then it says uh, in verse 1 and 2, On this day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Then they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. So in different ways it says what? That all of this is going to happen at Sinai. Like Sinai, Mount Sinai, is really important. Like all that happened in chapter 15 through 18, all that, ha that, that is going to happen in chapter 19 uh, is, is tied to Mount Sinai. So when you think of Mount Sinai, you're supposed to think of all that we already covered in 15 through 18 and chapter 19. Mount Sinai is going to have that kind of reputation. Okay, When I say Washington, D.C., what do you think? What do you think? Does Washington, D.C. have a reputation? Yeah. What do you think? Government, president, congressman, the seat of power, the seat of authority. Washington, D.C. has a reputation. And so, verses 1 and 2, God is saying, Hey, I am giving Mount Sinai a reputation. And this is the reputation it's going to be. Remember Mount Sinai. Okay? And this is what you should think about when somebody mentions Mount Sinai. You are to think about Yahweh's character. You are to, you have, you are to remember Israel's role in the world. When you think about Sinai, you are to think about the purpose of God's law, its negative role, its positive role, all the qualities of God's law. When you think about what happens in chapter 19 is going to be related to the reputation of Mount Sinai. So, Dayton Scripture, geography and places in Scripture, all have theological connections. They never just, no, no, the Bible writers never just kind of put these details out just because, just for the sake of being precise. No, oh, there's theological implications in, in, in geography and places and dates and in times. And so they're, look at verse 2, they're camped in, the, in front of the mountain, in front of Mount, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Then verse 3 says, Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Um, well, why do you think Yahweh refers to Israel as the house of Jacob and the sons of Israel? Well, what sort of a implication is being communicated by this name, House of Jacob, and, and the sons of Israel. What is Moses trying, what is God trying to connect? He's trying to connect Israel to what? Jacob. And where, where'd you, where'd you, where'd you, where'd you, where'd you hear about Jacob? Yes. And connected to what? He's, 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 he's famous. What is Jacob famous for? He's famous for what? He's, he's famous for being the son of who? Who, who is Israel famous for? Uh, for? Uh, Israel's another name for Jacob. Uh, Isaac, Abraham. And what is Abraham famous for? The Abrahamic covenant, yeah. So in other words, Israel... Is always going to be a nation connected to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. That Israel going forward is always going to be connected to Genesis. It'll always be connected to Genesis. That the Mosaic covenant that they're about to receive on chapter 19 is always going to be connected to the Abrahamic covenant. 
You have to think about it. You think of these connections. And so uh, Moses and God in the first three verses, they're trying to connect everything. They're trying to say, yes, we're moving on to new material, but don't forget that they, they have roots. They belong somewhere. Now in verses 4 through 6, um, Moses gives a summary of the Mosaic Covenant that they're about to receive in chapter 20. And in order to kind of really appreciate verses 4 through 6, um, you have to kind of uh, understand that the, the, the style and the form of the Mosaic Covenant was given in a form and a style that was, um, that was recognizable in their day and time. Um, the, 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 the structure of the law they're about to receive here and the structure of the law they're about to receive in Deuteronomy was written in the form of a, a, a suzerain vassal treaty. That's what that's the technical term for. Suzerain means a warlord, and vassal means the people that the warlord has conquered, right? And so whenever a suzerain, a warlord, would conquer a, 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 a people group, a city-state, a, a tribe, they would write a suzerain vassal treaty. And they would say, now that I'm your lord, now that I'm your master, this is what I expect of you. These are the stipulations. This is the agreement that you need to keep with me. And um, they would talk about, these are your responsibilities. And it would first, the a normal suzerain vassal treaties would begin with a, 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 a historical background. How, how did it come to be that I became your lord? Well, I conquered your king. I defeated your army at this place, at this time. And, and I did this, and I conquered, I won this battle, and then I became your new ruler. The Suzerain Vassal Treaty was also marked by uh, hostility and threats. I mean, this is, I mean, this is a, a brutal stuff. I mean, there, these, these guys, if you ever read the history of the details of ancient battles, I mean, it is like, it is bloody, it is violent, it is just, it, it is, it, it, I mean, it's just, uh, even in modern times with the wars that, the, the bloody wars that we're used to, uh, much more severe. And so these treaties were written that way. These warlords were like, listen, you better, you better obey me or I'm going to cut off your heads, right? That was written with brutal language, violent. Like, I'm going to destroy you. These, but these suzerain vassal treaties were harsh and brutal. And so that's the background. Okay, so we're so having that in your mind, we, we, now we can compare just how different God's covenant with Israel is going to be. They have a new master. It's not Pharaoh anymore. It's it's Yahweh. Yahweh's the new master, and Yahweh begins this covenant with a, a history. A history. Look what he says in verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So it begins with the history. But notice this history of how Yahweh became their Lord. There isn't the usual hostility that suzerain vassal treaties were known for. Uh, God says, yes, I did this to the Egyptians, to your enemies, but I didn't do this to you. I destroyed your enemies, but instead, for you, I rescued you. I saved you. Look what it says in verse 4. You know what I did to the Egyptians, your enemies, how I defeated them through the ten plagues, how I decimated their armies in the Red Sea, and compare what I did with the Egyptians to how I treated you. Verse 4. I lifted you up on eagles' wings. That's, that's that. You would never find that sort of language in a normal ancient suzerain vassal treaty. I lifted you up on eagle's wings. This is an expression of God's supernatural power. It shows that God has the power to overcome any enemy. And he did it in a, in a remarkable way, in a, in, a, in a brutal way toward their enemies, right? Because eagles are kind of violent birds. It shows that that God can rescue to the degree that you're protected from the highest threat. 
as high as your enemies can go and harm you, they can't fly as far up into the sky as eagles can, right? Remember, Lord of the Rings? I mean, where do you think there's there are situations where they're about to be destroyed? And what happens? These giant eagles come in and rescue them, right? At the last moment. Where do you think Tolkien got that from? He got that from the Bible. That's a, that's a, that's a, a metaphor from Exodus. That's, a, that's an allusion to Exodus. Um, this, this picture of being rescued by eagles, it becomes a metaphor for the Exodus in Scripture. You see that in Psalm 103. Go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103 begins, one, bless, bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that it is within me, bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. There it is. Like the eagle, this there's this idea where the picture is, is that you're weak, you're tired, you feel defeated, and God supernaturally gives you the strength to go on like an eagle. He rescues you like, like, like he rescued Israel from Pharaoh. That's the type of supernatural power he gives his people. Um, that's, a, that's an allusion to Exodus. Go to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. At the end, he says, verse 29, same idea here. He gives power to the weary. To him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Though, though uh, verse 29, chapter 40, verse 29, verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired, and choice young men stumble badly, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. In the same way, God powerfully rescued Israel from Pharaoh, he will rescue Israel by giving the supernatural power. He will be their salvation. They will run and not get tired. They will walk. They will walk and not become weary. See, the idea is that Israel will obey, obey God because God loved Israel in a way nobody else could. The only one, and the only one who can outdo God is God Himself. And so you have this idea of these, these themes of Exodus. Uh, in Psalm 103 and Psalm uh, and, and Isaiah 40. Go back to uh, Exodus 19. So this this suzerain vassal treaty, this covenant between a new Lord and His people, begins with this history, this rest, this this, re this beautiful reference, uh, the metaphor of deliverance, a powerful deliverance. God's power is on their side. And this last phrase in verse 4 is, is, is especially uh, especially poignant. He says, and I brought you to myself. Now, if you look at uh, the standard ancient suzerain treaties, the pronoun, the pronoun is usually under. That's what you find. If you look at all these, if you kind of read all these different ancient suzerain treaties, it'll always say, now you're under me. Now you're under my control. You're under me. Here, it's remarkably different. God says, I brought you to myself. This preposition to. It, and this preposition to emphasizes a relationship. It, it says that this covenant is not going to be one of dominance, one of brutal power and control, like the standard ancient a, a suzerain vassal relationship. This is going to be a covenant of love. It's a covenant of love. This covenant will demonstrate that Yahweh loved Israel, that, God, that Yahweh saved Israel in order to love them. 
I brought you to myself, right? Think of a marriage. This is kind of the language of a marriage. I brought you to myself to be my wife, to be my spouse. In verses 5 and 6, we see this uh, official um, a thesis statement of Israel. We see kind of the purpose of the law. and it's, 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 it's codified. It's made official. And in order for Israel to be an example to the world, that, an example to the world, they're going to need to obey God's law. If they're going to be a, mediate God's blessings, um, if they're going to show the world that they are truly God's treasure possessions, uh, they're going to have to keep His law. There's verse five. So now then, okay, these are the stipulations, and this is kind of the official kind of. This is how you're going to. This is how we're going to operate. This is kind of how our relationship is going to go. If you will indeed listen to my voice. And keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the people, for all of the earth is mine. Again, this is remarkable language. No other ancient suzerain vassal treaty talks like this. No other warlord, no other king talks like this. God says, you're going to be my treasured possession, my most valuable object of, of value. Uh, I'm, I'm going to possess you at all costs. And... This uh, relationship is what God wants for the entire world, right? Um, Israel will be a, a microcosm of that. Uh, God wants every nation to be his treasured possession. And, and Israel will be kind of the example to the world to say to the world, Hey world, if you obey God like Israel obeys God, you can have the same blessings that she has. Hey world, everybody look at Israel. Um, if you obey God's word the way Israel obeys God's word, you too, you too can be God's treasured possession, right? You can have the same kind of vertical relationship. And so um, Israel needs to be an example to the world of the blessings that come with obeying God's law. Verse 6, it says, You shall be to me a, a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? What's the role of a priest? Intercede, yep. Yep, yep. They mediate, right? They represent God to man. They bring man to God. And so Israel's role in the world their role is to be a kingdom of priests. They are to mediate the blessings promised by the Abrahamic covenant to the nations. They are to say in their example that, hey, you can have all these blessings too if you trust in Yahweh, if you obey his word. And the idea here to be a kingdom of priests is that everybody has to be a, a priest. Every individual has to play their part in mediating to the world. And that's why, remember in chapter 18, it talked about uh, uh, Moses needed to divide his responsibilities, and we learned that it's not about, um, the, chapter, the second part of chapter 18 is not about a delegation, it's not about a leadership, it's not the method that's being emphasized, it's what is being delegated. And what's being delegated is what? It's the Word of God. Like, every level... Uh, all of Moses' leaders, they need to what? Give everybody the word of God. Because everybody has to be a priest. Everybody has to be a mediator. And uh, that's what... Uh, now, we know the, the rest of the story of Israel. Does Israel ever do that? No, they fail, right? They fail and fail and fail. Um, look at uh, Exodus 28. Go to Exodus 28. And here's... Um, uh, this is kind of the instruction when they anoint the high priest. And yes, the high priests have unique duties, but the high priest also is like a model. The, the high priest is like an example to the rest of Israel to say, hey, you know what I do? You do as well. You do in the way, in, in the same way as I 
bring a man to God and God to man, you are to do as well to the nations. You are to bring uh, them to God and you are to represent God to them. So they were an example of how to be a priest to everybody. And so verse 28, bring uh, near to yourself Aaron, your brother and sons with me and from the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. These are going to be the high priests. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. Verse 2, you shall make holy garments for your brother. Um, and then go all the way, go all the way to uh, verse 36. Uh, they're, they're, they're basically a, a shield, a shield plate that they're going to put on their forehead. Look at verse 36. But you shall make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a signet, holy to Yahweh. That's what's supposed to be inscribed. You are holy to Yahweh, right? Uh, you are to tell Israel, hey, we're dedicated to Yahweh, right? We're totally consecrated to Yahweh. And everybody's supposed to be like that. All the nation, they're supposed to live in a way that tells the world that we're holy to Yahweh. We're dedicated to Yahweh. Now, in Zechariah, Zechariah 14, it talks about the fulfillment that end times when Christ returns and Israel fulfills all that God has planned. So go to Zechariah, and I'm going to ask you a question. So verse 14, uh, verse 1, the day is coming for Yahweh when I will gather all the nations. And verse 3, God will just destroy all those nations. Verse 4, Jesus will come and will split the Mount of Olives. And the same way he left in Acts 1, he'll return. Geography will change. Verse 6 and 7, the, there'll be no light because it'll be the light of Christ, right? Uh, verse 9, Yahweh will be the king over all the earth, and that day Yahweh will be the only one. Um, there's the feast of Booths. And then look at verse 20. Look at verse 20 and 21. My question is, what's the significance of this? In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to Yahweh, and the pots in the house of Yahweh will be like bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to Yahweh of hosts. See that? Everything. Every mundane little thing. Even, even pots uh, in the house of uh, Yahweh will be like the pots before the altar. Even the pots in, in, in Jerusalem and Judah, they will all have inscribed, holy to Yahweh. The same inscription that the high priest had on his head. So what is this trying to say? What, what's the point of saying this? What is, what is Zechariah trying to tell us? That when Christ returns, Israel will finally be a kingdom of priests. Right? Everybody will be a kingdom. Everybody will be fulfilling their function, their role as a priest. To the degree that even the pots, even pots will say, that's how common it will be for every single person in Israel to be a priest. And so here's the fulfillment where they're a kingdom of priests right here. Go to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 6. Isaiah says, says it more explicitly that in the end, in the end, when Christ returns, verse 6, you will be called the what? The priests of Yahweh. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their glories you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they will shout for joy over their portion. Right? So, that's their role. That's their function. This is Israel's responsibility to the world. The law points to this vertical relationship with God. And once that happens, they will fulfill their horizontal relationship with the nations. 
It will be a kingdom of priests. Now, does that now go to First Peter two? Go first, First Peter two, and now that Israel is kind of uh, has been kind of forsaken for a time. Look at verse First Peter two. It says, verse nine, you are a chosen family. Then it says, you are a ro royal priesthood. Now, notice, it says we're priests, but it doesn't call us a kingdom. We're not a kingdom of priests. Like they call it Israel. Because the church isn't a, a nation, so a nation can't be a kingdom. But we take on the same responsibility that Israel had. That we mediate Christ to the world by how we live. You show the world, these are the blessings you can have when you worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church's rule. Go back to Exodus 19. There'll be a kingdom of priests. There'll be a kingdom of priests, and Israel will be a, a holy nation. A holy nation. Yes. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 also calls us the kingdom of priests. Uh, verse chapter one, verse six. Uh, yes, and I think uh, he's uh, talking about um, the kingdom that is to come. So the kingdom to that, that so when Christ reigns, we, we are of the kingdom, and the church is part of that kingdom. So I think this is referring to what happens in Revelation, the kingdom of Revelation 20. Does that make sense? So we have a, a kingdom role and a kingdom agenda, but Peter uses different different language. He, he calls us a royal priesthood. And I believe he uh, does that for uh, a reason. To say we're like Israel, but we're not like Israel. Go to Titus 2. Paul, Paul does that, that, that as well. Go to Titus chapter 2. Um, Titus chapter 2. Well, I think it's a uh, uh, royal priest means a uh, priest. Uh, service of the king. Yes. We're serving the king, yes. But we're not a nation. So that's why he doesn't call us a kingdom of priests. That's, what, that's why he doesn't call the church a kingdom of priests. Because Israel's a nation, and the church, are we a nation? And therefore we're not a kingdom. But we, we have the same role. What is the point you're trying to make? I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to... I don't no, quite understand. No, I'm, I'm just reading the that in Revelation, he sure. said, to him who loved, who loved us yeah. and blessed us yeah. and released us from our sins by his blood. Sure. And he made us into a kingdom priest to the high God, to his God and Father. Yeah, but look at the context. To him be the glory and might forever and amen. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see even those who pierce them, all the tribes of the mourn will mourn over him. Uh, no, that make sense? the point is that also Peter calls us a nation. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to yeah. get to that. I'm going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, go back. Very good. Very good. So we go back to go back to Exodus 19. And then he says, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation... And the Hebrew word here for nation is goy. Now, goy is used often of Gentile peoples, right? Uh, uh, goyim, have you heard of goyim? Uh, Gentiles, right? And so notice that Moses, he could have called them uh, the sons of Israel. Uh, he could have used a different word for nation. He could have used Am, the people of people of a God, but he uses Goy. 
And he's making a point. He's saying, uh, yes, you're different, but you're really just like the Gentiles. You're, you're just like the Gentiles. The only reason you're holy is because I made you holy, because I chose you. But apart from that, you're just like everybody else. And that's the idea Moses has. And that's the idea I think Peter has when he says holy nation. He's saying, he's emphasizing their Gentile background, right? So the emphasis here is not so much a national people group, but you're just like the rest of the Gentiles. And the only reason that you're holy is because of what, because I made you a treasure possession, right? I made you a treasure possession. So, and, and so, this, came, this being a holy nation is communicating to the other Gentile nations, right? And saying this, hey, world, if I can make Israel holy, I can make the rest of you holy, right? If Israel can be holy, you can be holy, right? If God can do this with Israel, he can do this with anyone, right? And so... The church continues the same function as Israel. We tell the world, uh, so in during the Old Testament, did the nation go out? No. People came to the nation. When Solomon was reigning in his kingdom, all the nations came to the kingdom of Israel. The church, do people come, does everybody in the world come to one place? No. We go out. We go out into the world, right? So we're different in how we mediate and display God's grace, right? But we we mediate the same thing, right? But the but the way we do it is different because we're not a nation. We're not a kingdom. Uh, we're the church. We're the church. All right. This has extremely extremely important. I did practically for cash, but with a quick question and answer. Yeah, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, you can uh, either, yeah, then after, sure. So I'm trying to find. Church. 
They're thinking, nation, the Messiah is here. He's going, to, he's going to be king in Jerusalem over Israel, and all the nations will now worship Yahweh. That's what they're thinking when he says that. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's their understanding, that, because that's, their, that's the Old Testament understanding of the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't correct their understanding. He doesn't correct them. He says, oh, you, no, you, you, you're not making any sense. Uh, you're, I'm talking about the church. No. Um, so, go to Luke. If I, if I were uh, a person yeah. that day, yeah. and, and Jesus comes yeah. and says, repent, the kingdom of God yeah. is at hand. Yeah. This is what I would think. Yeah. Oh yes, okay. So because we so far we have had the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom yes. of the Romans, the yes. kingdom of the Greeks, the kingdom of the Persians. Yeah. Now you go with the, another kingdom. Yeah. What is different about this kingdom? Because all the all the all the previous kingdoms, right. all of them are kingdoms of you know from this era. Right, right. Bad kingdoms. Bad right. kids. Right. So, but this kingdom is different. Yes, this kingdom is has a good king. Yes. Who's all powerful. Who will, where uh, people will obey God's law. And citizens will all submit to their king. And all, it will feel like the Garden of Eden. Right? It'll be like King Solomon's kingdom. Remember King Solomon's kingdom? Everybody came and they said, oh, your God is the right God. Queen of Sheba, your God is the right God. That was a preview, a preview of Jesus' kingdom. And so all the Old Testament, they're, they're talking about a Messiah. So 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, the, the point is, Oh, he's the king. Oh, he's not the king. Oh, he died. Oh, no. Josiah, oh, wait, he died. That's the point. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. The, the good king, where all of Israel's enemies will be defeated. Right? And so when Jesus comes, they're saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. I'm the son of David. I'm the, good, I'm the Messiah with the kingdom. So they're thinking earthly kingdom. They're not thinking church. Church is a mystery. Church is a mystery, right? The Jewish people are thinking kingdom in it. And so in Acts 1, go to remember Acts 1? Uh, Acts 1. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Right? Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? You see one six. <laughs> they're, they're still thinking earthly. Yes. Yes, they are. They are. And Jesus, now notice the answer. He says, "It is not for you. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by His own authority." So Jesus' answer is that. You're thinking the wrong, you're thinking earthly kingdom. You're thinking wrong kingdom. He's saying, you don't need to know. The Father knows that. The Father knows that. Verse 6, but for now, you're going to be, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. For now, in Acts 2, the Spirit's going to come, and you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem to the end of the year. So Jesus has a two-part answer. The question of the disciples are, are you now restoring the kingdom now? He says, it's not for you to know. So that's uh, uh, that's the father. That's the father's prerogative. That's the father's timing. But for now, you're going to have a church. You're going to have a church. And so Jesus delineates that, makes that distinction. He doesn't correct the the, 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 the disciples here. Don't have the wrong misconception. They don't have a misconception of the kingdom. Because if they did, Jesus would correct them and say, "You've got it all wrong." They have the right conception, but, but Jesus is saying, you don't, we don't know when. We don't know when that second coming is, is, is coming. Um, so, in the New Testament, go back to the New Testament. Uh, 
Uh, okay, one more thing. <laughs> Last answer, and then we'll get back to the study because I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm going way out. Uh, 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 let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, verse. Okay, if you go to uh, Luke chapter twenty-two, uh, the last Passover. Uh, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So we're never going to have this Passover again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of God. So he's not talking about the church age, right? He's talking something after the church age. And he's talking about his return. Right? And he established his kingdom on earth. So in the New Testament... Every time the word kingdom is used, I think every single time, but maybe one time, it's used, I think, I believe it's referring to a future literal kingdom on earth. Now, there are times where you, where it, 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 it can seem like he's talking about a spiritual kingdom here and now in the church age. There's a couple of times you could go either way. And I think there's maybe one time where Paul uses it in a very, uh, in a general spiritual way, and, and, and it is true, we because the church is uh, Paul, Paul. I need to turn this down a little bit. Let me turn it down. Uh, the church is part of the kingdom of, the, of agenda. We're part of a kingdom plan, right? Uh, we're fulfilling the role that Israel never kept, and we're saying that in the future Israel will keep the role, right? And so we're in this in between time where we're saying, hey. We represent the kingdom. We represent the kingdom, but we're not the actual kingdom. Um, you know, Jesus talks about uh, 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 chapter twenty-two. Uh, if you look at Luke twenty-two, they're they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Verse twenty-four, twenty-five. The kings of the Gentiles. Um, you know, they they they're lords, but you're you're, you're supposed to be humble. Verse 28, um, now you you have stood by me in my trials, and I grant you a kingdom, just as my father granted one to me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Right? This is literal. They will will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel, but this will be future. So, that's the idea. Okay? Well, well let's, 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 well, you can ask some more questions when we're done. Okay. Let's go to Exodus 19. Um, Moses, uh, uh, he calls, verse, he goes to verse 7. Uh, he says, these are the, verse 6, these are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Verse 7, Moses came and called the elders of the people and said before them all the words which Yahweh commanded, uh, commanded him. Notice, the, that those words, the, the, the phrase, all these words, right? Everything in the law. Uh, everything is God's word. And then it says in verse 7, all these words which God had commanded him. There's authority in the law. God's own authority. And then, in verse 18, the people respond to what Moses says, and they say this, in verse 8, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Right? Uh, uh, Sinai is, is going to establish, this is Israel's understanding of the law. This is, the, the, God is defining the terms about Israel's relationship with God's law. The reality of the authority of God's word is going to define everything that Israel does going forward. And Israel will not succeed unless they obey God's word. But in verse 9 through 13, Yahweh says to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud so the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. God's presence will validate the authority of his law. He's going to validate that. He's going to make that, hey, this is my law, and me coming to you in this thick cloud will validate that. Verse 10 and 11. Yahweh said to Moses, go to the people and set them apart as holy today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai of all the people. 
Um, so, so Israel, when they when they receive God's law, they need to consecrate themselves. That His authority demands that you meet His standards. You get ready for Him. You get you consecrate yourself. He doesn't go down to you. We go up to Him. So wash your garments, right? Uh, 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 meet his standards. Make yourself holy. Verse 12 and 13. He says, You shall set bounds for all the people all around. Beware that you do not go upon the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Um, God here wants to show that, that you need to fear his authority. That there, you need to be serious when you're dealing with God because his authority is deadly. His authority is deadly. Fourteen and fifteen. Now Moses went down from the mountains to the people, and they set the set people apart as holy, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, "Be ready for the third day. Do not go down uh, near a woman." And so they need to again. They need to meet his level by washing their garments, and that would be. You know, to do that in two days, to walk, you know, about a million, two million people to wash your garments, you don't have a lot of water, that's, good. that's, a, that's a high, that's a very large undertaking. That's no easy thing. And then he says, in end of verse 15, do not go near a woman. Uh, don't let anything distract you. That the authority of the law is so serious, you need to be focused, right? Don't go near a woman. Be focused. You ever... You ever, anybody watch boxing? You know anything about boxers? You know sometimes boxers you, they'll for when when they have a championship fight for one month they will be they will not if they have wives they will they will be they won't then there will be no no uh, romantic involvement with their wives they're, they're, because they're focused they don't want anything to distract you this is the same idea when you receive this law his authority is so serious you, you nothing can distract you. Verses 16 through 25 in the second half of the chapter, the people of God, the people of God will meet Yahweh on Mount Sinai. Verse 16, on the third day when it was morning, there was thunder, lightning, thick cloud, a loud trumpet sound. This is not a volcano. This is the appearance of God. Verse 16, they, at the end of verse 16, all the people who were in the camp trembled. They realized that, that God's presence, there is danger involved. Uh, verse 18, uh, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. There's this auditory, sensory, visual, judgment language. This is, this is a language of judgment, verse 18. That this is what Sinai is about. This is the reputation of Sinai. When you think of Sinai, like when you think of uh, Washington, D.C., and you think of government and power, when you think of Sinai, you need to think that God's word is going to be enforced. That there will be penalties when you don't meet his law. And the, the, the description in verse 18 is, is God burning an, an entire mountain. Like it's not just smoke on the top. The, the imagery is that the entire mountain is covered in smoke. That's how powerful he is. The text literally says, Now Mount Sinai, smoke all of it. So when they saw the mountain, it was engulfed in smoke. And then, then it says, look at the bottom of verse 18. The whole mountain trembled violently. Now when you think of a mountain, what do you think of? Constancy. A mountain is immovable. It is the, the symbol of security. That's not when God's there. The mount shakes. That's how powerful God is. He can shake a mountain. He can shake an entire mountain. He can, he can burn a, a, an entire mountain. This is what the authority of God's word is like. This is what Israel is learning about their law. Learning about the reputation of Mount Sinai. See, they, when they think of Mount Sinai, they're supposed to think the law of God, and they're supposed to think fire and smoke and this, this, this trembling of the mountain. And they're, they're learning about the reputation of Mount Sinai. They're learning, if you disobey God's word, God is going to destroy you. God is going to destroy you, right? Verse 19, 
through 25. Notice um, you see Moses speak, and God answered him. Yahweh came down, verse 20, verse 21, Yahweh spoke to Moses. Verse 23, Moses said to Yahweh. Verse 24, Yahweh said to him. 25, Moses went down to the people and told them. Right? This is revelation. This is how revelation works. Right? Moses speaks. God answers. God speaks. Moses comes down. Verse 25, he tells the people. This is, this is how the word of God is, is, is produced. Right? His representative speaks. God answers, right? And verse 19, how does he answer? God answered him with thunder. There's the threat of condemnation. Verse 20 again. Um, Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Yahweh called Mount, uh, Moses to the top of the mountain. Do you see how Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain, the mountain is being emphasized? You see how the reputation of Mount Sinai is being established? This is how we are to think about Mount Sinai. So Sinai is, is, is Mount Sinai is establishing the authority of God's word. It is established in verse 20 to 25. He basically says the same thing he said earlier, but with more detail. There's more detail now. He, he said this back in uh, verse 12 and 13, and now in verses 20 through 25, he expounds upon that to show that all the details of the law matter. All the details of the word matter. It's when you obey God's law, it's more than just getting the gist of it. No, you have to obey every single detail. And so you have kind of several things going on. 